So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 65, 54 through 65. Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 65. We are currently in that section of Luke's gospel where we are considering Jesus' final sufferings before his greatest suffering, which will occur when he is hanging on that Roman crucifix. Here in this passage, we will see Peter's denial of our Lord at one of his greatest moments of of need and tribulation. So Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 65, please pay careful attention for this is God's word given to us this morning. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, if I were to ask you what this passage is about, I would imagine that you would say, well, it's about Peter's denial of our Lord. That clearly is the obvious and dominant theme that comes out from this narrative. However, we we not only see Peter's sin here, his sin in the form of these three successive denials, but we also come across the guilt of his sin. Notice how, what, what, what we read in verse 62, Peter weeps bitterly over his sin. Peter recognizes the guilt of his sin before his God. That is indeed the dominant theme that we see in this narrative. However, we also see another theme in this narrative. And this theme is the gospel of of grace. I mentioned last week that we shouldn't think of these 
final sufferings of our Lord, which, which come before his greatest form of suffering on the cross, we shouldn't see these final sufferings of our Lord as, as merely the necessary preconditions or the prelude that we need to get through to the, so that we can see Jesus on the cross. Rather, these final sufferings of our Lord contain the gospel in themselves. We see certain themes foreshadowed in these final sufferings that will be fulfilled when Jesus hangs on that cross. And so it is with this passage. We see a theme, another theme in this passage, which will be fulfilled when Jesus hangs on that cross. And that theme is related then to this gospel of grace. Therefore, the two themes that we see in this narrative are both the guilt of sin and the gospel of grace. The guilt of sin and the gospel of grace. Now, you can think of this theme of, of the guilt of sin that we see vividly portrayed in the life of Peter. You can think of this theme of the guilt of sin functioning or being somewhat similar to, to salt. Now think of salt. We love salt when it's used as a seasoning agent upon the right types of foods in the right proportions. However, salt by itself is rather disgusting. Boys and girls, imagine that this evening your parents serve you chicken, mashed potatoes, and salt. And the salt is a, is a side on its own, and you have to eat it by itself, a pile of salt. Pretty terrible, pretty terrible. Well, so it is with this theme of the guilt of sin. When this theme of the guilt of sin is served all by itself, it's sort of like eating salt on its own. Not very beneficial. However, when this theme of the guilt of sin is used as a means to drive us to the gospel of grace, then it's being used as a seasoning agent. And it's very helpful. It's very beneficial. So what I'd like us to do this morning as we consider this narrative I'd like us to consider these two themes, the themes of the guilt of sin and uh, the theme of the gospel of grace. But more specifically, what I would like us to do is to consider the relationship between these two themes. And uh, what I mean by that is I'd like us to see how this theme of the guilt of sin serves as a seasoning agent upon the gospel of grace. It serves as a means, the guilt of sin serves as a means of driving us to the gospel. Well, imagine that you have an apple in your refrigerator that's been there for quite a while, and you decide to take it out. It still looks pretty good on the outside, but then you cut into it, and it's brown. It looks like it's rotten. That's sort of what's going on in this narrative. As we continue to go deeper and deeper into this passage about Peter's denials, it gets worse and worse. And so you'll see that in verse 54, this passage begins with Luke stating this, that then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Now the they that's being referenced here is a reference back to verse 52. 
those who came to Jesus in the garden to arrest him. It's the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders. These are the individuals who have arrested our Lord and are bringing Jesus to the high priest's house to begin his trials. Now, where is Peter in the midst of all this? Luke tells us that Peter follows at a distance. Peter follows at a distance as Jesus' captors are leading him to the high priest's house. As one commentator states, Peter seems to be assuming the place of the unfaithful friend. The unfaithful friend. Listen to what Psalm 38 verse 11 says. Psalm 38 verse 11 says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. We have to remember that the Psalms are first and foremost Psalms of Christ. They're Christ's songs or Psalms. And thus Psalm 38:11 is ultimately fulfilled in our Lord. Partly in this moment when Peter, arguably his chief disciple or apostle, follows at a distance, not wanting to be too closely associated with our Lord at his moment of greatest need. Well, once they bring Jesus to the high priest's house, we see that there are a number of people who congregate in the courtyard of the high priest's home. And someone may have been one of the officers of the temple like the fire. Probably it was a cool spring day, and thus they were seeking to keep warm, and someone in the courtyard lights a fire, and people congregate around this fire. This is the context of Peter's denials. And these denials come to us in a, a staccato-like fashion, one after another. And they get worse and worse as we consider them. So first... In verses 56 through 57, we read that a servant girl, a servant girl in the courtyard catches a glimpse of, of Peter's face from the light of the fire and exclaims, this man was with Jesus. This man was with Jesus. And how does Peter respond? Woman, I do not know him. Right off the bat, we see Peter denying any knowledge of our Lord. Peter arguably was one of Jesus' earthly friends who knew him best. And yet, at this moment, Jesus denies, uh, Peter denies ever, of, ever having of known him at all. Well, we read then that after some time had passed, Peter's identity caught the attention of someone else in the courtyard. This other person then exclaims, after catching a glimpse of, of, of Peter, you also are one of them. And Peter, yet again, says, man, I am not. Now, what is Peter denying here in this moment? Well, he's not denying knowing Jesus. Rather, he is denying being a disciple of Jesus, currently being a disciple of Jesus. This seems to come to us in the present tense, you also are one of them. And Peter says, I'm not. I'm not currently a disciple of Jesus. Peter here is denying, in some sense, the identity which Christ has given him. Christ is the one who made Peter a disciple. And now Peter 
is denying that identity which has been given to him. And we see this denial getting amped up in Peter's third denial. So as we continue on in this narrative, you'll see that Luke intentionally notes that now an hour has passed. And Luke is very intentional about noting the time lapse between Peter's denial to show us that these denials were deliberate and conscious. They were deliberate and conscious. P Peter wasn't denying on, on the spur of the moment with no time to think about it. He had time to think about it. And thus P uh, Luke says that between the second and third denial, an hour had passed, and yet another person uh, notices Peter and particularly notices that Peter is dressing like a Galilean and he has a distinctively Galilean accent. People in Palestine at that time could, could perceive the, the subtle differences in dress and accent based on where you resided and came from in the region of Palestine. And thus, someone there was able to, to note and, and discern Peter's Galilean background. And so we read this person exclaiming, certainly this man was also with him for he too is a Galilean. And what does Peter do? He says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Peter here is doubling down on his second denial. His second denial is a rejection of his identity currently as a disciple of Jesus. Well, here, Peter seems to be denying ever of, being a, ever of having been a disciple of our Lord. Now, this Galilean reference seems to be telling us that Peter is denying any association with Christ's Galilean ministry. Now, what happened during Jesus' Galilean ministry? If you remember, as we've been going through Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry began in the region of Galilee in the north, and then he began to journey down to Jerusalem. It was in Galilee where Jesus called his first disciples, which included Peter. In chapter 5, we hear that Jesus called Peter out of what probably would have been a somewhat lucrative career in fishing, well, especially lucrative compared to being a disciple, called him out of a, a career in fishing to become a fisher of men. We see that, that Jesus gave Peter a new name. He formerly was known just as Simon. After this call, he was known as Simon Peter. Therefore, Peter seems to be denying this original calling and name that Jesus himself gave him. Now, the same Peter, remember the context here, the same Peter who, not even 24 hours before, had confessed at the Lord's Supper, that he was willing to suffer and even die with Jesus is now at this time denying ever of knowing Jesus and denying ever of being with Jesus. We see that repetition of that preposition with. Peter had previously said, I will suffer and die with you. I've never been with him. See a stark reversal here 
in Peter's denials of our Lord. Now, while Peter's third denial is yet still on his lips, we read that, that the rooster crows. <laughs> the rooster crows in fulfillment of uh, Jesus' prior prediction. Peter predicted at, at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, that Peter would uh, deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And so while this third denial is yet on Peter's lips, the rooster crows in fulfillment of Jesus' prior prediction. Yet, the way that Luke presents this narrative, what jogs Peter's memory is not the rooster crowing, but rather the Lord turning and looking at Peter. What jogs Peter's memory, what convinces Peter fundamentally of the guilt of his sin, is not the rooster crowing, but the Lord turning and looking at Peter. Now this word that Luke uses in the original language for turn, it's used a, a, a half a dozen times or so in Luke's gospel. Every time that it's used, it's used to refer to the posture that Jesus assumes as he corrects or rebukes a certain person or a crowd. Another way you can think about this word is this is the posture that Jesus assumes as he's about to speak his holy and divine law. And so what jogs Peter's memory, what convinces Peter of the guilt of his sin and of his denials is Jesus turning and looking at him. Jesus doesn't even need to speak a word. The posture and the look does the job. Jesus turns and looks at Peter, and at that moment, Peter recognizes what he has just done. Now, of course, Peter knew what he was doing. He had, Luke's very intentional with the time lapse in between these denials. These sins were deliberate. They were done consciously. But Peter didn't feel that conviction of sin, of what he was doing. And at this moment, Peter gets a taste of reality, of what he has just done, and he is cut to the heart. He feels a conviction of the guilt of his sin, and consequently, what does Peter do? Well, we see in verse 62 that he weeps. He weeps. But he doesn't just weep. Luke adds another very vivid word to describe the nature of his weeping. He weeps bitterly. Bitterly. Again, it's as if Peter is getting a taste of objective reality. He's getting a glimpse of, of, of the objective reality of his sins. Now, when you think about your own perception of yourself and of your actions, it's very hard to have an objective reality of yourself. Oftentimes, we either have an inflated view of ourselves and our, and our actions, or we think of ourselves and our actions um, better than what they actually are, or we think of them as worse than they actually are. It's hard for us to have an objective view of ourselves and of our actions. In fact, one way you could define humility is a proper recognition of yourself and of your own abilities and actions. Peter gets something of that humility, a glimpse of that objective reality of his previous actions and he is cut to the heart. 
Now, we are more like Peter than I think we would care to admit. Uh, we often, we often uh, partake of sins that don't just reside in our heart, but we partake of sins that proceed through our mouths and through our hands. That's what happened here uh, with Peter. He didn't just feel fear in the heart, but it manifested him standing or following at a distance. It manifested through his mouth as he denied the Lord three times. We also partake of sins in a deliberate and repetitive manner. And we also struggle to, to, to feel that, that conviction of sin. How often do we engage in sins over and over again? And we might feel a little bit of guilt in the moment, but we so readily move on. We don't have that taste of the objective reality and nature of our sin. However, there are those moments. There are those moments when it's as if the Lord turns and looks at us through his holy divine law. We come into contact with that law either through the scriptures or through our own conscience. And at those moments, we, we are cut to the heart. We feel that conviction of sin and have a taste of, of what we're actually doing in our sin. We recognize who, who we are. We recognize our sin is fundamentally committed against the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Therefore, when, when we feel that conviction of sin, our minds, our consciences, our hearts are functioning as God intended them to function. So that's important to note, that when we feel that conviction of sin, our minds, our hearts, and our consciences are functioning as God intended them to function. Now, we, I think we all know uh, pretty intuitively that God has endowed this universe with a physical order and with physical properties. And this physical order can be discerned by virtually all human beings. Take gravity, for instance. We can discern and think about gravity in a theoretical way, but for most of the history of the world, people have known about gravity not theoretically, but experientially. Many people knew that if you take your flock of goats or sheep off the edge of the cliff, bad things will happen. You know that just by experiencing life in this world. Well, in a similar way, God has endowed this universe with a moral order, a moral fabric, or a moral pattern. And we all, by virtue of being made in God's image, can discern something of that moral order. Knowledge of this moral order isn't just given to us as Christians. This is not the secret knowledge of the Christian church, but rather all people, by virtue of being made in God's image, as they live in this world, can come to some knowledge of the very moral fabric and pattern of this universe. Therefore, one way you can define sin is sin is essentially trying to go against the very moral fabric pattern and current of this universe and expecting good to come out of it. The same way, let's say you, you meet someone this week who tells you that their plan for the weekend is to go to the tallest building in Seattle and they're going to go uh, to the top of this building and their form of relaxation on the weekend is they're just going to float to the ground. You think they, they may have a psychiatric disorder. You can't go against the physical order of this universe and expect good to come out of it. 
Well, in an analogous way, sin is trying to go against the moral order, fabric, and pattern of this creation and expecting good to come out of it. It's irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's not an objective view of reality. It does not accord with the nature of things, with our experience in this world. And so imagine you are that person who thinks you can go to the tallest building you know, in Seattle and, and, and uh, you think you can just calmly and peacefully float to the ground by your own power. And you're about, you're at the edge and you're about to jump when you remember your high school science lesson on gravity. And you remember, you remember that you will not calmly float to the ground, but rather you will come crashing down to your demise. At that moment, your heart about leaps out of your chest about what you were about to do. That is akin to the conviction of sin in a moral sense. We get a glimpse into the objective reality of the order of things. Just as, this, just as we can't go against the physical order of this universe and expect good things, so too we can't expect to go against the moral order of this universe. Expect good to come out of that. And therefore, the conviction of sin is a recognition, an objective glance into our sins and how we are trying to vitiate against the very fabric and currents of how God has set up this world. And so when we feel the conviction of sin, it's a testimony that our consciences, our minds, and our hearts are functioning as they were meant to function. This is why even unbelievers can, can have a conviction of sin, though it doesn't lead to, to to the gospel necessarily, but it's testimony to God's image and uh, preser preserving common grace in their lives. But this moment, if we, if I ended the sermon on this note and said, well, you all are mini Peters. You all are sinners just as Peter was a sinner. You all need to be sorry for your sin and weep bitterly over your sin, as Peter weeped bitterly over your sin. That would be like me saying, you know, the fellowship lunch that we're planning on having later today, we're not going to actually eat all the food that you guys have brought. We're actually just going to serve salt. That's it. The guilt of sin is not meant to be served by itself. It's meant to be used as a means of driving us to the gospel, the gospel of grace. And so I want to briefly consider Consider this gospel of grace and how the guilt of sin is meant to drive us as a seasoning agent to this gospel of grace. Now, I already mentioned that the theme, the additional theme that we see in this narrative that is fulfilled in Christ as he hangs on the cross is, is really just another view of this theme that we've already been considering. What's happening in this passage? Well, Jesus is being denied, forsaken by Arguably, his closest earthly friend, Peter himself. But what happens on the cross? Well, Peter quotes, uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, a psalm which we will be singing later on in our service. He quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Peter, uh, Jesus isn't, uh, or, excuse me, Jesus isn't merely forsaken by his earthly family or friends. He is forsaken and denied by his Father in heaven. Therefore, when we see Peter denying Jesus, that theme is fulfilled when Jesus hangs on that cross and is forsaken 
by God, when God himself will turn his face away from his son. We have to remember that Jesus was forsaken on the cross for us, for you, for me. Our sin requires that God forsakes us. God is a just God, and therefore those who break his law, uh, those who break his law deserve God's just retribution and punishment. Due to God's justice, God has to forsake those who are his lawbreakers. And therefore, Jesus went to the cross as our substitute. He took upon himself all of your sins which you have committed and thus was forsaken by God for your sins so that you will never be forsaken by God. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus was forsaken for you so that no child of God will ever be. The gospel is that Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that God can promise you in the words of Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the gospel of grace that we're called to rest in, that we're called to believe in. This is also why Peter is able to be restored after denying his Lord three times. Peter denied his Lord, the one who at that very moment of his denial was upholding his own body by the word of his power. And Peter denied him. How can you recover from that? It's only because Jesus was forsaken by his Father. And so, too, the promise that we have this morning is that if you are one of Jesus' sheep, there is no sin. No sin in your past, no sin in your present, no sin in your, in, in, in your future that will now create a breach between you and God, that will cause God to forsake you. Jesus was forsaken by God on your behalf. Now the guilt of sin, the guilt of sin is so important because it preps our heart to receive this good news. This good news that is truly unbelievable once we recognize our sorry estate, and the guilt of our own sin before a holy God. Therefore, it's so important that we uphold both of these things together. Now, you know, if churches just give their people the gospel of grace, uh, the people are going to be nourished. Just as if you eat food with no salt, you're going to be nourished. It's just that your food may taste a bit bland. And so, too, if, if the gospel of grace is preached with no no, no recognition of the guilt of sin, then for many people, that gospel of grace is going to feel bland. Yes, it will nourish, but it will feel bland. If you don't recognize how bad the bad news is, you're not going to appreciate how unbelievably good the good news is. In a similar way, or on the other hand, if all churches do is give their people the guilt of sin, it's like serving your family salt at every meal. Pretty quickly, your family members are going to say, I would rather fast than eat another meal of pure salt. I truly believe this is one of the reasons why so many people are walking away from the church today. Because all they receive when they go to the church is the guilt of sin. They're sick of a spiritual diet of salt. And they think to themselves, I would rather spiritually starve or fast than have another meal of salt. Therefore, it's so important that we uphold both of these things the guilt of sin as a seasoning agent upon the gospel of grace. 
one of our distinctives as a Reformed church plant at GHURC is that no matter who is, is in the pulpit or the lectern, uh, you will always receive spiritual food seasoned with salt. The guilt of sin driving you to the gospel of grace. We see this in our own Heidelberg Catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude. The guilt of sin drives us to the gospel of grace. And we receive this not just in the preaching of the word. But you'll notice we receive this in our liturgy. One of the reasons why we every Sunday hear the law proclaimed to us, confess our sins, and then hear the gospel is so that we can be fed a balanced diet. A diet of spiritual food seasoned with salt. That's the important truth I want you to leave with you this morning. The guilt of sin is important. The gospel of grace is important. But it's very important that we recognize the proper relationship between these two 